My next guest is Samuel Hyde, who is a writer and a researcher based in Tel Aviv, Israel. Throughout his career, he has worked at various think tanks and research institutes in Israel and South Africa, and for others based in the US. Hyde writes regularly for various media outlets. I'm delighted to welcome Samuel Hyde to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Now, Samuel, I uh, first cottoned on to you when I saw that you had done a response to an article by Benjamin Pogrand about his views on apartheid. But uh, unfortunately, we couldn't proceed. Do you want to explain uh, why? Uh, well, I'm currently actually working on a on a project regarding the apartheid claims against Israel for one of the think tanks that I work for. So while that process is ongoing, we don't do any public appearances on that as particular topic. But for anyone that wishes, I suppose, to read the article which came out before I started on this project, they can find it on Haaretz. That's right, yes. And I'll put a link uh, afterwards on uh, the Facebook page so people can go and refer to that. But not to be... uh... Undone. Uh, we decided that we were going to find something else to talk about, and you uh, are a writer and a researcher based in Tel Aviv, and you write about a lot of different things and have a lot of areas of expertise. So do you want to basically give us an idea then of, of what is your panoply of uh, subjects that you can deal with? Uh, yeah, I think I, I write very often a lot of these topics uh, uh, interweave with each other. So I write a lot about Zionism, I write about the West Bank settlement movement, Israeli-Palestinian relations, and Israel's domestic political scene, as well as socio-political factors and different elements of Israeli society um, at play. So a lot of the time, actually, all all those topics actually interweave with each other. And you publish your work or your work is published in quite a number of publications. Do you want to give us an yeah. idea of uh, how widely you can be read? Haaretz, uh, Jerusalem Post, Times of Israel, and Newsweek, the Jewish Journal, uh, Fathom Journal, Tablet Magazine. I think those are predominantly where I've been published. There, there are others uh, probably escaped my mind, but that's pretty much where a majority of my articles would, would be found. So we might try and get you into the Australian Jewish news one day. <laughs> I would love it. I like writing for, for whoever I can. Okay. Now, you edited the book written by a leading thinker on Israel, Zionism, Foreign Policy and Education, namely uh, Dr. Onat Wilf, uh, who many will certainly know of. This book titled, We Should All Be Zionists. So what is that book about in particular and what part did you play in its publication? I was involved in some contributing writing for it, and I was the editor, and and we we published the book together. We basically started out together. I remember meeting Aina. I'd been given her number by someone just after I'd made Aliyah from South Africa. And we sat down and met, and I I was asking her advice because I knew she had been involved in think tanks and research institutes, and I just wanted to get some advice. I thought it would be a half-an-hour conversation, but it turned into this four or five hour conversation, it just seemed we really got on and, and thought very similar. Um, and, and when I was leaving, she basically said to me, do you want to work on a book? And I said, yes, in my life, but I'll probably write it in about five or 10 years. And she said, no, I mean, with me right now, we can start next week. And I've been a fan, like many people of Anut, um, growing up and, uh, 
that was obviously a great opportunity for me that I was going to jump at. So, so the book is titled We Should All Be Zionists, and it focuses on Zionism in the 21st century. It obviously does date back. It focuses on Israeli politics and the path to peace with the Arab world. So we look at the Abraham Accords and the changing dynamic in the Middle East, uh, the, the shifting paradigm due to that. Right. And you've also been a contributing writer on another book with uh, Annette Wolf uh, titled Political Intelligence. But this one is not there to be read yet, is it? Uh, no, no. This one's still in the works. This kind of came about as a result of two things. Number one, she gave a course at a university in America, which one it's escaped me. I don't want to mention the wrong, the wrong university, but she gave a course basically on her political career in the Knesset. Uh, and she always says her political career and why it failed. Um, and, uh, while we were, while we were writing, we should all be Zionists. We were kind of brainstorming a lot of things and speaking about a lot of things. And this kind of came about with us reworking on another book together which, as you mentioned, is called Political Intelligence. And it basically, a very short summary of what it looks at is just like uh, in business, uh, profit would be your currency that people trade in. Uh, so in politics, power is the currency that people trade in. So we, so we go really into power and how power functions at the heart of politics. We make the argument that political intelligence is its own form of intelligence, just like you have emotional intelligence, social intelligence, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, we make the argument that political intelligence is its own form of intelligence. It doesn't matter how many PhDs or doctorates you have in political science. Once you get into government, it operates very, very differently. For example, to something that I do as a researcher, as a someone who creates policy and, and writes. So, when is this expected to be out on the shelves of well, bookstores? I'm not exactly sure that we have a date right now. We're kind of in the middle of the process and, and we haven't really put ourselves under any immediate pressure on, on when it would be released. So hopefully sooner rather than later, uh, but um, I'd, I'd say maybe within the next year to two, maybe yes. maximum. You're extremely busy because you're also the co-author of another up-and-coming book, I understand, titled <laughs> Seizing the State, the West Bank Settlement Movement's War on Israel. Yeah, this is true. I'm, I'm working with a very close friend of mine named Blake Flayton. And, um, it looks, we basically start the book uh, tracking the first 100 days in office of this current government. And, and that's, that's important to look at because in, in most democracies, governments are granted a hundred day grace period. Critics and rivals kind of give them a hundred days of grace and, because of the actions of this government, I suppose that that's not what played out in Israel. It doesn't really play out in most deeply divided nations, but certainly not at this point in Israel's history and time. This will lead naturally into the topic in which we're speaking about, uh, that uh, we kind of believe that the reform or the so-called reform is not just a, a legislative reform, but it has roots in in um, the West Bank settlement movement. And in, that's why it's essentially called seizing the state. That will become more apparent from my perspective on that as we go through uh, what we speak about today. But that's basically the fundamental idea of, of tracking of tracking what the role of the, the settlement movement is in this in this uh, judicial overhaul. Yes, so that is certainly uh, leading into what we're going to discuss. But before we get into that, I've got one more question that relates yeah. to you and what you generally do. You're also working at the Foundation for Defence of Democracies. What uh, yes. are you doing there? 
I'm, I'm mainly working on policy, policy analysis and policy writing for them uh, with regards to Israel. Often when you're working on stuff with Israel, uh, Israeli-Palestinian relations comes into policy issues there as well. So, so yes, I write for them and I uh, edit uh, other, other writers' work. And then I look into policy analysis and creating essentially new ideas in like a think tank environment on how to solve certain problems, whether it's conflict resolution strategies or whether it is looking at uh, essentially the, ref- the reform uh, and, and deciding if we are to actually do a reform, what would actually be needed, what would actually solve the problems and, and developing certain strategies around that. Right. Now, I'd like to refer to an article that you wrote earlier this year titled Dispelling the Myths of the Settlements that was published in the Jewish Journal. We, we want to talk about something that's actually out there already uh, yes. when we, we delve into this, the, the idea of, or the understanding of uh, the settlements and, and what the effect they are having on uh, Israel today. Can you tell us, going back now, about the settlement of Chomesh that was yes. uprooted along with uh, Gush Katif in Gaza and three other West Bank settlements? It was part of the government's disengagement plan back in August 2005. Uh, this gives us a bit of history. I think you've written the initiative to repeal sections of the 2005 disengagement law to rebuild the Homer settlement poses a threat that could lead to a future in which political violence takes precedence over the rule of law. So has this uh, judgment uh, to disengage been completely reversed? Uh, it has. It was reversed actually towards the end of March, if I'm correct, March or early April. As you mentioned, this is essentially a, a piece of legislation that's put 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 forth to the Knesset, and and it's since passed in, in, into law to repeal sections of the 2005 disengagement to to build this particular uh, settlement in Chomech. Uh But the story actually it actually doesn't start there because it begins. It starts three years earlier in 2020. Uh, when Israeli settlers essentially begin illegally moving into this area, they squat there, they take over private Palestinian property, uh, they're resorting to various degrees and, and levels of violence against Israeli police and hostility towards Israeli soldiers and intimidating Palestinian civilians. So now that this legislation's passed, it doesn't only legitimize the creation of a new settlement in that area, which violates the disengagement law, it also conveys a, a clear message to the settlers that these actions in which we just mentioned, the taking over private Palestinian property, attacking Israeli security forces and, and intimidation and, and, and real brutal violence against Palestinian civilians is essentially acceptable behavior to attain similar political means going forward. And the settlement movement is very interested in those similar political means. I mean, we've even seen now uh, so far there's been 12,855 housing units approved across the green line, essentially, uh, since the beginning of the year. So it is all about territorial expansion. And essentially, one could say it's twofold. There's religious reasons, but there's also reasons of preventing the uh, the future existence of any Palestinian state in any part of the land. When you send a message at a government level, when you legitimize the actions of extrajudicial violence against civilians as well as towards the security forces by granting those people exactly what they required rather than abiding by the rule of law, that's what I mean by uh, political violence is taking precedence over the rule of law. Just to add to that, sorry, it, this, this also has great potential harm going forward 
to actually reverse many of the gains that Israel made from an economic perspective during the disengagement law that it signed. It was a diplomatic effort that actually greatly benefited Israel uh, and was acknowledged by by the international community. So uh, the international response to this going forward would also have uh, had had possible adverse effects on, on the state of Israel. So you contend that the relative quiet, I'm quoting you now, the relative quiet regarding the Chomish proposal is not indicative of Israeli public support for the settlements, but indifference thanks to two intertwined myths. Mm-hmm. So do you want to explain what are these two myths that uh, are related to the Israeli yeah. Uh, settlements? Yeah, so I'd say the first is irreversibility. The idea essentially is that the Jewish settlement movement, the project in the West Bank has gone beyond the point of no return. And the second is risk and, uh, risk of confrontation. So evacuating the settlements and the settlers uh, would escalate in, in, into a civil war. I will add that there's, there's actually a third misconception, and that would be that the settlements not only bolster security, but also function as the first line of defense, ensuring the safety of those living within Israel proper, let's say. So, I, I mean, I can go further into detail and debunking why those are myths, but I, I, those are predominantly to me for all the work and the research that I've uncovered and looked into Israeli society. Those are kind of the three continuous security, irreversibility, and, and fear of uh, violent confrontation that would escalate into a civil war. Yeah, so you shared with me um, an article. Um, we've been discussing essentially the article in the Jewish Journal so far, but you shared with me another article, Settlements and Security, a work of fiction. Is this, mm-hmm. this article, is this article, this is soon to be published, is not yet available? Yeah, it's actually soon to be published next week, and I'm also publishing it in the Jewish Journal because that is where this previous article went. So I thought I'd, I'd, I'd publish the next article there. And I think a lot of what I'm speaking about is being increasingly spoken about within the state of Israel, but, but I think it's a conversation that therefore needs to be brought forth towards the diaspora as well because it requires, you know, some reevaluation within, within the Jewish world as well and the way in which in which the Jewish world engages with the Israeli settlement movement. So on the first myth of uh, irreversibility, uh, you make some remarks there about which particular uh, settlements that are out there currently uh, will be able to remain. What mm-hmm. um, Can you give us an idea of, of what those are and, and what percentage of the uh, settlers or settlements they, uh, they comprise? Sure. Uh, I mean, when you look at any of the uh, the agreements and proposals that Israel's made towards the Palestinians, for example, that has been supported by the US and, and the European Union and, and the international community, as well as when you look at any of Israel's clear policies over the last two decades, let's say, you now have these skeptics who essentially believe that the settlements are irreversible, and they argue that the main reason for them being irreversible is essentially that they cannot be evacuated the size of their population. But but the truth is, like, the actual number of settlers, as you've, as you've mentioned, is not actually related to whether they can be evacuated or not. So you have roughly about 440,000 settlers in the West Bank, which makes up pretty much 14% of the total West Bank population. Uh, that's just including the Palestinians. And most of them, probably 80 to 85% of them, live in what are known as the settlement blocks. So the, the settlement blocks are actually areas adjoined to Israel's sovereign territory, so adjoined to what some would call the Green Line, 
and they would not actually be up for evacuation. So you're actually looking at between 80 to 85 percent of settlers would remain in the very homes in which they currently live under any future agreement or even if Israel had to take a unilateral measure by drawing its final border. Okay. And on the other myth, which is the issue of security, which I think we'll probably delve into a bit uh, deeper, the idea is that uh, the, the myth, as you said, is that Israel's yeah. security is 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 not really being preserved by keeping these uh, settlements in place. And do you want to say why that is the case? Sure. I mean, I'd argue that it's not only not being preserved, I'd say it's it's a total burden, I think. But to, to understand the argument I'm going to make, we have to trace the origins, essentially, of of this uh, illusion, because it's a conflation of Israel's two distinct roles in the West Bank, which is essentially its military presence and its civilian presence. Those advocating for the settlement movement have essentially gone to great lengths to blur this crucial distinction, leaving many to believe that without the civilian presence, the military cannot carry out its duty to effectively guard the state. Even if we are to set aside, for example, the phenomenon of violence that's been happening in the West Bank, with one of about 40 examples is Kawara, which was the, the Palestinian village that was burnt down by 400 settlers, the opposite is actually true. The settlements don't serve Israel security. The Israeli security forces serve the settlements. Most of Israel's security forces in the West Bank are not actually engaged in fighting terrorism, but rather in guarding settlements. Uh, there was a Molad study, and it was uh, it was it quoted the former Deputy Chief of Staff Moshe Kaplinsky, which said that an estimated eighty percent of IDF forces are actually in the West Bank are actually engaged in safeguarding settlers and settlements, and only twenty percent in fighting terrorism against Israel proper. The other thing that was catalogued in a study by the Institute for National uh, Security, which is one of the best think tanks on security in the world, was that at any given time, between 50 to 75% of Israel's overall combat forces are deployed to the West Bank, which is essentially more than all the security forces used on every other border put together. That would be the Arabah Strip along with Jordan. That would be Gaza, that would be Sinai, that would be uh, Jordan, Syria. When you think about that, when you think about all those borders, we've got more more security, you know, triple the amount of security stationed at the West Bank than all those other borders. I don't see much evidence supporting the idea that the settlements serve Israeli security. I think Israeli security serves the settlements. With uh, this question of the uh, security, the one of the Big concerns, and perhaps you can uh, go some way towards uh, waylaying what would be one of the biggest objections, I think, is that people will refer to what happened uh, with Gaza and the withdrawal from Gaza, and they would say, well, uh, the the West Bank, if Israel was to do the same kind of thing in the West Bank as it did in Gaza, uh, the situation would be even more perilous because of the narrow dimensions that Israel has uh, next to uh, the uh, the West Bank uh, territories. Do you want to uh, perhaps respond to to that concern? Sure. So I think first and foremost, I don't think that the Gaza disengagement was the wrong decision. I think the way, the manner in which we disengaged was the wrong model. As I've said here, there's I like to deconflate the difference between the military presence and the, and the civilian presence. Firstly, 
because you've got Hamas there who uses Gaza as a, as a rocket launch pad, I mean, I know this, I find myself in a bomb shelter a few times a year, <laughs> but over 70% of this, Israel supported the disengagement in a referendum uh, just before Gaza. And that was because rockets were already being fired before 2005 from the Gaza Strip when Israeli military and civilians were still in Gaza, which is something that has kind of just seemingly been forgotten along the narrative and Israeli settlers were being killed in their homes. So if you look at the, the, the death rate of Israelis due to Gaza violence, between 2000 and 2005, which was a very violent time, you had 147 Israelis die between those five years. Since the disengagement, which is not five years, but now 18 years, you've had uh, 67 Israelis die. So we've essentially, during the, disengage, during the disengagement, have saved hundreds, if not thousands of lives, because especially at this time, when you look at what's going on in the West Bank, it's very possible that we would have had a third intifada by now. Firstly, there's that. But as I said, I don't agree with the disengagement model that was done in Gaza. I think that the reasons for doing it were correct. I don't think that we should have remained in Gaza. Uh, I think that we'd have hundreds, if not thousands, more Israeli civilians dead. And as I said, they were still firing rockets. What I think was the problem was the, the military evacuation. So what you saw that was different, actually, in the disengagement of northern Samaria, the northern West Bank, which is where the Chomesh settlement is the, the settlement we originally started speaking about, is it was a different disengagement model. So the settlements were actually evacuated and the military remained. And you saw a rapid decrease in violence for a period of 15 years up until the settlers illegally moved back in and squatted and violence has since erupted. So for 15 years, that, that, that process of disengagement was actually the least violent area in the territories. And today, three years after the settlers uh, moved back in there, it's the most violent area in the territories. So I think what you can do here is you can still say that some form of disengagement uh, or civilian evacuation will be in Israel's best security interest, but Israel needs to maintain an interim military presence um, as long as there's no Palestinian sovereign there, or as long as the Palestinians have not agreed to lay down their arms against the Jewish state. But Israel does need to be putting its security before it, before any sort of political ideology, and therefore uh, civilian evacuation is in its own best interest. But if in uh, some future epoch we end up with a Palestinian state alongside Israel, the Palestinian state would not, I understand, be happy to have Israelis allowed to trample on uh, on their territory at will like they do now. Uh, so, uh, that of course would, um, mean that we were in a totally different space than we are now in terms of the enmity between the, the two, the two uh, nations. Of course. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And, and also look, you've got like, you've got three options for disengaging for any evacuation. You have the option of, you know, I'm, I'm speaking in unilateral measures. I believe that Israel actually, after Camp David, the failure at Camp David, Tabba and Camp David II, uh, where the Palestinians rejected all these proposals, uh, I believe that Israel needs to start operating in its own best interest. And that means from the perspective of security, economically, a legal perspective, diplomatically as well. And I, I do believe that drawing a final border close to the green line, but as I've said, which incorporates 80 to 85% of the settlers, 
uh, is in Israel's best interest. Also from a demographic perspective, you're currently sitting at 50% Jewish and 50% Arab if you include the Arab Israeli population, the Palestinian population. But what many don't realize is that the Palestinian population is not only younger, but also has a higher birth rate, even than Haredim, for example. So that 50-50 is not going to last very long. In a one-state idea, or once Israel de facto annexes the territory, in order to not land up in a one-state apartheid, for example, one would need to absorb the Palestinian population in and give them full civilian rights. And I'm not sure when you've got a majority Arab population, even if it's 52 to 48, if you can seriously consider that Jewish state, firstly. And I'm also not sure how you're supposed to maintain Jewish sovereignty as a, even if it's as a fractional minority. And any country that's, that's had a ethnic majority, um, issues escalating to mass civil war, you can look at Yugoslavia, look at Lebanon, Syria, all these countries are great examples. You are literally going to be either having to give up on the democratic framework of the state of Israel or on the Jewish framework of the state of Israel, which are, are two factors that are inherent to the Zionist project from from the pages of Herzl right into its implementation into the Declaration of Independence and beyond in practice in Israel. So that's why I've, I've actually said, and I, you know, I make really no apologies for the statement, that the settlement movement and its goals to expand across the territories which puts all these things at risk of what I've spoken about, actually represents the greatest anti-Zionist activity by any group of Jews since the, the the creation of Zionism itself. I know we focus on Jews who support the BDS movement, and that's very important uh, to to be focused on that. But in practice, uh, this the, this movement actually physically puts the Zionist project at risk. There are accusations that settlers are running rampant in the West Bank and harassing and intimidating Palestinians with the Israeli authorities turning a blind eye. And I'm saying this based on an article that came out in Haaretz very recently titled, Settlers have a very effective system for forcing Palestinians out of their homes by uh, Abishai Moha, who happens to be an anti-occupation activist. Would you uh, call yourself an anti-occupation activist? No, I uh, I see the necessity for a military occupation. Do I think that the situation on the ground should remain an occupation? For sure not. I mean, an occupation, there is always going to be human rights violations within an occupation because it is a military system that is put in place against a hostile civilian population and essentially one could say an enemy population. So there's always going to be opportunity for abuse of power and human rights violations. Do I see it as a as something that is desirable for Israel in the future? No. Do I see it as something militarily that is, um, one could say necessary for the, for Israel in the, in, the, in its current predicament? Yes. Uh, so I think I differ from the anti-occupation activists. I agree with them on the settlement movement that there should be a settlement evacuation, but I take a different stance militarily to them. I do agree in some, in some aspects with his characterization. And I'll tell you why. I think in some cases, when it comes to certain parliamentarians that are currently in the ruling coalition, I think it's worse than turning a blind eye. One only needs to recall Bezalel Smotrich, who actually called to wipe out Huara the day before 400 settlers entered the town and, and burned the village to the ground. There was another attack that happened, another violent clash in the Palestinian town of Burka, which is next to the Israeli settlement of Otsion. They're very close to each other where a 19-year-old Palestinian civilian was killed 
And the the person who was involved in the killing, who was actually arrested, was a guy named Alicia Yared, who was a former spokesperson for the Otsma Yehudid party, uh, Ben Vir leads that party. Yes. And Ben Vir's response was that these men are heroes and they should be rewarded, not that they're murderers who should go to jail. Um, so this tracks back to what we originally spoke about, about political violence taking precedence over rule of law. So I agree. I mean, there's been 25 serious attacks of that nature of what we've spoken about in the West Bank. And I think that the, the, the great issue actually is that even people that acknowledge the flaw in this, they tend to want to say that uh, it's just another sequence of like violent incidents by the Hilltop Youth, uh, which is a radical lawless group of like young settlers. And they're known for their aggressive stance towards Palestinians. And they also believe that the state of Israel should be replaced with um, a religious state with the state of Judea. So that kind of ideology is also very much linked to the judicial overhaul. But I also think that it's that's a, that's an incomplete image, because what we're what we're observing now happen in practice is actually um, a meticulously planned out strategy set in motion over a decade ago. I'd say when I was doing research on the project, I, I discovered like uh, I wouldn't say I discovered it. I I found it. I'm sure other people have seen them before. Well, obviously other people have seen them before, but there's official publications from. Uh, the settlement movement itself, their regional councils in the West Bank, which uh, speak about price tag attacks, about how they're going to start a battle on several fronts that the government won't be able to control. And they initiate and encourage rioting and damage to Palestinian property and uh, attacks and murder of Palestinian civilians. As I said, now you've got um, parliamentarians and government who act as the national representatives of the settlement movement and their councils, and their actions actually align. Yeah, I think that there's Israeli moderates that are turning up some sort of blind eye to it. I think that there are Israeli extremists who are actively supporting it and promoting it. And then I would say, though, that the IDF, for example, has been very against it, which has created a lot of tension between the chiefs of, of the Israeli security forces and the government, which indicates once again that the government's motivations in the settlements have very little to do with security. Daniel Hagari, who's the spokesperson for the IDF, the chief spokesperson, actually said that this nationalist terror is actually pushing civilians in the Palestinian Authority who are not traditionally involved in terror to terror. And the head of Israel, Shindet, uh, Ronen Bar, he, uh, he echoed the sent and he warned Netanyahu that uh, this increase in construction, as I said, we've actually seen unprecedented animal construction of 12,855 housing units approved so far for the year. And the settler violence that is going along, that's actually fueling Palestinian terrorism. So you've got your security establishment who's made their position clear on this and your government who's, in many cases, is egging this on. Well, I just want to sum up by acknowledging that we're sitting on the 30th anniversary of the Oslo Accords. And uh, on the international stage, we repeatedly hear the claim that Israeli settlements are illegal and constitute a major obstacle to the achievement of peace. Do you believe that the Israeli settlements actually violate either the Oslo Accords or any other aspect of international law? Okay, so I, for me it's twofold in the sense of if you look at the Fourth Geneva Convention and the Hague Convention, it's very explicit and says it in black and white that a country that is occupying the territory of another country militarily it is illegal for them to transfer civilians of their country into the territory of another. So if we are to view the territories as 
occupied, and by the territories I mean the West Bank, then according to international law, they are illegal. If we are to look at the the Israeli government and even the Supreme Court um, don't acknowledge that the territories are occupied. They they take the stance that it is disputed territory. And there's valid arguments towards that, for sure. So if you look at it as disputed territory, then the settlements are not illegal. If you look at it as occupied territory, then the settlements are illegal. So that's from an international law perspective. It really depends on where you fall on the pendulum of that argument. Are they disputed or occupied? Uh, when it comes to stuff regarding Oslo, one can't say that all the settlements violate Oslo because Oslo was an interim agreement that said the status of the settlements will be uh, left to the final status agreement. However, Oslo also did divide the West Bank into those into three areas, area A, B, and C. And area A is where the Palestinian Authority have full civilian and security control. Area B is where there's shared control with Israel. And area C, which is 60% of the West Bank, Israel is fully in control there. And there are, there are areas within Area C where Israel is not actually allowed to build or construct settlements. And the Palestinians, by the way, are also not allowed to build or construct any posts which are regularly removed. Yes, that's when you hear the word illegal outposts are being built by the settlers. That is when they are building past a specific line that violates the Oslo Accords and, and in various international agreements, including the Security Council Resolution 242. Illegally, things are, are um, not black and white. Yeah, well, in terms of uh, the Area C, though, there's a lot of uh, construction, illegal construction by uh, by Palestinians. and uh, There is. There uh, is this, indeed. This, this is crowd called the Israel guys who are not Jewish. I don't know whether you're aware of them. They've done some stunning videos showing some uh, extraordinary uh, mansions that have been built in uh, this area that Israel hasn't touched. So Israel yes. is uh, letting a lot yes. of it uh, lie on the land. Well, we've run out of time, unfortunately. <laughs> these these things always run away from us. Uh, but Thanks, I think we've mate. covered uh, a good part of the subject. And uh, as as you as listeners who are hearing what we've been saying just now, we could really continue on for some time. But unfortunately, the clock is against us. But I really thank yeah. you very much, uh, Samuel, for coming onto the show. And uh, hopefully, in the future, we can have uh, some more discourse. That would be fantastic. Thank you for having me. I really, I really enjoyed the chat. Thank you. Thank you. So I've been speaking with uh, Samuel Hyde, a writer and researcher who lives in Tel Aviv, about the issue of Israeli settlements in the West Bank.